Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Hey there. Today we're chatting with Kobe Sconard, who's the co-founder and CEO of IdeaWake. Kobe and I chat about IdeaWake's growth over the last seven years, talk a lot about product market fit, talk about selling into a B2B context, talk about how to differentiate yourself in a crowded market, uh, that migration of doing things that don't scale into a truly self-serve scale-up startup. Awesome conversation, really enjoyed it. Hope you do as well. Check out IdeaWake at IdeaWake.com and uh, find Kobe on social media and tell him thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Kobe Sconard, who's the co-founder and CEO of IdeaWake. Kobe, welcome. Hey, Mike. Nice to be with you. Why don't we start with a quick pitch for IdeaWake? Sounds great. So IdeaWake is a software platform that helps capture, evaluate, and implement ideas from frontline employees really centered around the idea that you know people that are closest to the customer and to a process have the best ideas on how to improve that process. So uh, we really just you know foster that culture of innovation at the front lines of large organizations. Go one level deeper on tangibility. If I'm a frontline employee at a target customer, what's my experience? What do I actually do? Definitely. So uh, we run these different initiatives that we call challenges. Those challenges are related to a strategic area of focus for an organization. So that's posted by leadership. And then employees are able to post their ideas under those specific challenge topics. Once an idea is posted, employees can collaborate around the idea as well as uh, you know vote for it to increase its visibility in the community. And then based upon the ideas that are automatically surfaced by employee voting, those ideas are going to go through a workflow where they are routed to different uh, leaders, depending upon the type of idea that it is. Leaders can give it a go or no go or you know, evaluate it based on custom criteria. And employees get notified at each stage of the process where their idea is going and why. Who's the perfect target customer for this? Anybody that has over 100 employees is our normal minimum. Really where it starts to get interesting is 250 people and above is really where you know we focus a lot of our time. But we our smallest customer is 50 employees, the largest customer is over 70,000. Nice. Dude, awesome. All right. And then that's a nice transition. Hit us with some current stats. Anything, any kind of metrics you can share that paint a picture of the status of the company overall, how long you've been around, number of ideas that have been woke, if that's a thing, uh, like anything you can share that will help somebody who's listening understand where you're at on the journey? I'd say that we're you know, in growth phase in terms of the journey. So some front level or high level metrics, we uh, 
software is being used in, let's see, 39 countries and over 185 cities last time we checked. So we're in 12 different verticals. Healthcare is a big vertical for us. So we have the largest uh, health system in Wisconsin, Illinois, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa. And, you know, we're currently at a total of 12 team members and been around our, I think it was our seventh birthday. I should know that. But our seventh birthday was uh, October 31st. So just over seven years old. I've never gotten an actual birth date on the podcast. Why October 31st? Why did this company launch in October 31st? <laughs> just serendipity. I, I, there's no there's no rhyme or reason. I just I very explicitly remember it being, you know, right before a Halloween party. Got it. I was at the bank and, and got it everything, all the paperwork signed, opened up the account, got the articles of incorporation in that same day. So Because I'm I'm sure he's probably listening to this podcast. My one of the co-founders my company developer town would be remiss if I did not mention here that he specifically chose January 1st, 2010 to start uh, developer town to, to launch developer town. We actually hold off, held off for a couple of months to get that launch date so he could have a binary launch date 010110 because uh, that's the that's the kind of geeks we are. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, moving along. That dude, that's an awesome update. It immediately makes me just in terms of stats immediately makes me want to ask 39 countries talk, talk like just a like that seems like a nightmare of translations and internationalization and stuff like that. How have you handled that? Yeah, so I mean, that's at the end of the day, right? It's a vanity metric like you you had set up front and what it really focused like customers are in much fewer countries but they're global organizations, but to handle the internationalization of things, right? Uh, platform could be translated. I think we're at like uh, nine different languages right now. So that was uh, a journey all its own. Uh, but multi-language translation, making sure that your GDPR compliance or the CCPA that just came out, but that's within the states. So I mean, there's a lot of different um, policies, and procedures, legal compliance that you've got to make sure that you're aware of and follow. Uh, but that's why you got to make sure you have a good lawyer. Right on. Awesome. Well, I love it. Even nine languages is still pretty baller. That's uh, that's that's pretty cool. Yep. So, okay, so let's let's get into the meat of the discussion. When you think of competitors for IdeaWake, who or what comes to mind? Yeah, so I mean, you can look at the landscape, um, you know, from our stage today, where we are currently, and then also where we're going. Uh, to touch on where we are today, I mean, a lot of people that are listening to this that aren't familiar with the quote unquote innovation management space uh, will look to things like Slack or Microsoft Teams. Basically, those two are very popular and everybody is familiar with them. But once you go over 50 employees, it becomes really, really inefficient to use those types of systems. And then that's when people go over to a dedicated tool. Hence why we have that 100 user minimum most of the time. Uh, but there are you know, a plethora of direct competitors that offer uh, what would be called innovation or idea management software. Really, what we focused on was ease of use as well as uh, you know, offering a lot of consulting baked in with all of our plans that come included in the subscription. Uh, we wrote that out for you know the last five years, uh, and we're able to grow. Like I said, you know we're in twelve different verticals now, approaching I think like thirty-two customers. Now we're rewriting the entire platform. Uh, just actually released it uh, in the last two months, and that platform now is going to have product differentiation built into it. Uh, so from where we are today, really we focus on strategic support. And also just ease of use, not offering, you know, all things to all people in the software, but uh, can touch more on, you know, if you're interested where we're going as well. <laughs> of course, I'm interested. <laughs> uh, hit, hit that now. Talk, talk a little bit about why the rewrite and then more about the strategic differentiation. When I started the company, 
I got a developer who was a friend to work on it for free. Node.js, as well as um, it's it's called the mean stack. So it's Node.js, uh, Angular, JS, the first Angular, as well as um, well JavaScript server and client side, as well as no SQL on the back end. So not to get too into the weeds with the technical stuff, but that was not the right technology stack to go with, simply because we have very structured data in our system. And so we rode that out and that architecture and technology for four and a half years. Uh, and my CTO has been saying for the last three and a half years that we need to rewrite. <laughs> so uh, from a technical standpoint, we needed to do it. We also actually co-developed a second product and learned a lot from a relationship with uh, Advocate Aurora Healthcare. And that product, to try to incorporate it into the current architecture and platform we had, I equate it to trying to fit a 40-foot yacht into a two-car garage. Uh, so from you know the technology stack and scalability standpoint, we really needed to rewrite. But then also in order to bake in some of our differentiation that we had co-developed uh, with corporate partners over the last couple of years, we really needed to you know rewrite the architecture and the technology so it could scale. And then I want to make sure I heard you right. Before, when you were talking a little bit about differentiation, you said that you were providing a lot of consulting baked into the, the services plan. Did I hear that correctly? Correct. Are you still doing that? So currently, yes. Talk a little bit about, more about that. What what kind of consulting? What does that look like? Definitely. So it's a partially implementation and then continued success. So uh, companies know that they want to implement these types of programs, but they don't necessarily. If, if they've tried it in the past, it's you know a couple of reasons that they stopped doing it. One of them is that they couldn't get people to use it, or secondly, they didn't know how to implement the ideas once they received them. It was too much um, you know input, and they couldn't assign people or hold people accountable to take action on the ideas they received. Uh, and so, what we really help do is actually build out not just you know providing you with a tool and configuring that tool, but providing you an overall system. And I would say, from a piece of advice to folks, you know, don't think about scalability in the beginning, from zero to 100k in MRR. What you really want to focus on is is understanding the customer at a very very intimate level. And just naturally, by us doing things that didn't scale, it really did give us the ability now to learn and get that intimate relationship, build really strong relationships, have low churn. And now we're automating all of that in this next version of the platform. So over the next 12 months, you're going to see a lot of the strategic support actually baked in to the platform for the end user so that it does become scalable. And and just give one quick example, if you can, of, of what an example of like, this would have previously been done manually, and this is how we're automating it in the new platform. Yeah. So to launch a new customer, we have something called the launch checklist. That's a series of you know ten different line items that we go through. Uh, it's everything from what questions do you ask, and how do you make sure the questions that you're asking are going to a get engagement, uh, but then also b actually produce a financial result to the company, all the way down to how do we promote the system and how do we communicate it. So all of that now, well, those two items, but also the other eight that I had mentioned are baked right into the platform itself so that end users, right, as they sign up, it starts taking them through that checklist and they click and it takes them step by step on how to configure the platform, how to promote it so that it works and so people sign up and so that people continue to use it. Got it. And then how's the product priced? Yep. So a uh, couple of different pricing schemes. So based on number of users being targeted by default. When you go over uh, 5,000 users, we start to do administrator-based pricing with unlimited users. Products also really commonly used externally. So 
standard use case. And when you look at our website, a lot of it is around employee-driven innovation, so employee ideas. But often companies will start there and then expand it out to customer ideas. When they do that, they're often going to go over that 5,000 user threshold. Got it. Talk a little bit about your background. Why IdeaWake? Where did this come from? Originally, we were talking about rebrands leading up to the call today. And basically where where this started was in college, my junior year, was thinking about reading a lot of uh, books on crowdsourcing uh, and also just you know wisdom of crowds. And from there, what ended up happening was just had this spark, right? The spark came over a series of, you know, several months of researching this, but I was in my parents' basement and was like, why can't we crowdsource the product development process? And that is what eventually became Inventilator, which was the first iteration of the company, all the way now to IdeaWake, two rebrands later. And my background, personally, I went to uh, UW-Whitewater and majored in accounting and finance. And if I'm a so I'm a large health system, I implement this. Am I looking for? And I, I'm I'm sure your answer to this is going to be yes. I'm looking for all these things, but maybe provide a, a a little bit more focus or editorial where you can. But am I looking for like okay, we're just trying to eke out you know incremental process improvement? Like how do we just get ten percent better in a in a given process or area of the company year over year? Or are these big innovation challenges like startup weekend, but inside my company where we're going to find whole new product lines, whole new ways to serve the community, the customer, you know, whatever that is. Like, how, how do your customers typically think of leveraging a product like this? It's actually split about 50-50. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's on more towards performance improvement in times, you know, in times of COVID. But we're seeing, you know, the new product and service innovation start to you know, make its way back. Some companies double down on doing, you know, the more disruptive things since their entire business model was disrupted as a result of COVID. But it's it's been more focused on performance improvement lately. We're normally at about half and half when we're not in a COVID environment. So COVID is interesting. Do you have a feel for what just from an employee engagement perspective, does engaging with a tool like this help people feel less nervous about their career and their company because of COVID? Because this is like a a way to engage and like it's a it's a it's a very tactile hands-on way that you can engage in solving the problem or does this create anxiety because maybe companies are surfacing problems that need to be fixed and putting you know it, instead of being out of sight out of mind it's in front of the employees so from a standpoint of employees you know like having fear of retribution is one thing but also you know being less engaged as a result of this uh, we really have not seen that at all uh, simply, uh, part of it might be, you know, the companies that tend to work with us are going to be companies that either already are communicative with their frontline staff, or they have a desire to be communicative with their frontline staff because of the fact that our system naturally is, is open-ended feedback on on specific topics. So we really have seen overall, like during COVID, we have a case study that's coming out. We helped improve employee engagement by, let's see, like nine percentage points specifically for learning and development. And that's according to McKinsey's Organizational Health Index. And we've done that now in two industries. One of them is uh, healthcare. And then the other industry is actually hospitality. So it does definitely, we can you know tie it to measurable data points or outcomes where it really does help increase engagement in COVID and non-COVID environments. So outside of COVID, if, if I'm a customer and I'm using IdeaWake, how am I measuring the success of IdeaWake year over year? What am I looking for from an ROI perspective? 
The answer everybody loves to hate, it depends. So it's really based on part of the assessment we do up front is what are you trying to get out of the system? Why are you implementing it? Normally, it's going to always be either growing revenue, reducing costs, but always a common thread is increasing employee engagement. There are other ways to grow revenue and reduce costs other than going to frontline employees. Obviously, we're biased towards you know that being one of the best mechanisms to do innovation uh, for several reasons, which we can get into if we have time. Those are those are the common threads. Really, the in the beginning, what we're measuring is engagement rate, quantity of ideas that we're receiving. And then from there, you go into after the first, you know, three months, number of ideas that are getting approved and number of ideas that are getting implemented. And then looking out six to 12 months, you start to look at for performance improvement, some type of ROI, whether that's an improvement to quality, whether it's an improvement to net promoter score, or whether it's time savings, error rate reduction, something you can really tie a hard cost to. So it's a journey. Do you feel like you have product market fit with IdeaWake today? I would say yes. Most definitely. Why? Part of it's MRR, um, customer success, uh, customer testimonials, case studies that we have. Uh, the fact that we're talking to you know some of the largest companies in the world uh, and getting success with them. It's you know also looking at customer retention. So I mean, just from those metrics, right, and also our growth rate over the last couple of years, uh, even through COVID. When was the first time you felt like you had it? That one wasn't as uh, concrete in my mind as, you know, the founding of the company <laughs> uh, or the origination. You know, October 31st. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's, it's a process, right? So, you know, you have indicators. I just mentioned, I think, rattled off like five different indicators. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's not something where it's you have a clear indication of it. We're still modifying our processes, the solution. Uh, we've seen pretty much every request and really, like I said, intimately understand the customer. But I would try to look at a couple different data points when, you know, if somebody else is listening to this and evaluating whether they have product market fit, you can look at an MRR number, right? So like when we started hitting like the 30s, low 30,000s, you knew that you had something, right? Also looking at growth rate year over year, then also looking at most importantly, longer term customer retention. I'd say going off of those three metrics, you can start to determine whether you've got a product market fit or problem solution fit. Kobe, does IdeaWake have any cool swag or things that you give out to clients or employees? Uh, we do. It was, uh, we were swag less. I actually have, I'm wearing, well, I was wearing, I put on IdeaWake, an IdeaWake shirt. I was wearing our original, like I think three of them were made in ventilator sweatshirt, which is the original iteration of the company. Uh, but we just started doing swag, I don't know, a year and a half ago. So we knew we weren't changing our name. <laughs> <laughs> Finally settled on it. Nice. Yeah. I like it. The product market fit. That was another indicator. I, that is that is actually a great indicator. I never thought of that before. That's great. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so what's your swag of choice? What uh, what do you guys uh, at IdeaWake prefer? I mean, we're pretty standard, man. We got t-shirts, uh, uh, t-shirts, sweatshirts, and then we did blankets. They were supposed to go out for Christmas last year. We normally do like a client gift at the end of the year, but I'm actually yeah. looking at them right now, right across from me. Uh, <laughs> so those never made it out. But yeah, blankets are like the most... Well, we also do mugs. I guess, yeah. Amanda has done quite a few things now. Nice. That's but, awesome. Yeah, we're not going too crazy on it. I mean, it's it, we don't dedicate budget to it. It's just, you know, a couple, uh, like a thousand bucks a year, I'd say, we're spending on swag. 
Perfect. Well, if you're listening to this and you need to get swag for your company because you've finally settled on the name that you're going to use going forward, you can go to fuelmerchandise.com and mention Startup Competitors, get 10% off your first order. So the, the thing that's interesting to me about that answer, well, may, maybe I'll start here. So I interviewed uh, Matt Wyrick, the founder of Reallink, maybe a year ago now. It's, it's been a while. I asked him about product market fit on accident. Like it, it just came up. They had built Reallink to do you know a thing one way, and they had been successful at selling it, and they had grown to you know pretty pretty reasonable MRR and pretty reasonable customer retention and pretty, you know, like, like all of the signs of life were good. And if you were an investor, you're probably pretty happy. And then they decided to pivot and they completely changed the way that they engage with customers and, and kind of the, the kind of the, the core thesis of thesis of the product. And, and if you, when you listen to Matt, it like just completely unlocked growth. And maybe this is my romanticized memory of that episode, but, but in general, this is the, like, this was the moment that I thought I need to ask more people about when they knew that product market fit, because from all outside perspectives, you would have looked at Reallink and said, you have product market fit. Why in the world would you change the product? And what Matt's answer to that was, was like, it was so hard to sell. Like we had to sell. He's like, I knew we didn't have product market fit because I had to sell every single customer. And to keep them as a customer, we had to have customer success that you know, worked in the business to keep them, you know, to keep them engaged and keep them using it. He, he and the team felt this trem- tremendous resistance to to using the product. And he's like, once we made this pivot, all that went away. Like customers came to us, they started sharing it with other people. We never had to do customer success anymore. I shouldn't say that, but like customer success got easier. And he was like, it was like this, the ability to grow just became so much more apparent and easy. So, that, so I have that floating around in the back of my head, which is why I asked the question. And then the thing that is particularly interesting about IdeaWake is, you know, when we opened the conversation about competition, you said there's there's lots of competitors in the market. Um, many people do this, in, including Slack and Team. You know, if if you're not fully steeped in the space, you might think Slack and Teams could be a competitor. So there, you know, there's there's a lot of options. You want to build strategic differentiation into the platform going forward, which is part of the rewrite as well as you know the data problem. And so it's it's the thing that has me wondering, like it, the thing that is really interesting, and certainly by all of your metrics, you're right. You you have product market fit. I'm I'm not saying you don't, but the thing that's really interesting to me on there is like where in that obfuscated journey did it happen, and why did it happen? Like which of those decisions do you think made that happen? Okay, so I've been talking for like probably a minute. Hopefully, you've been thinking in the background. What what's your answer to that? Definitely. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to parse the different pieces apart and also kind yeah. of talk back to you know the the last the last point that you were you know kind of making. Product market fit is a stage in the journey, right? Once you have product market fit, you gotta figure out how to scale it. Yep. And that's really the phase that we're at is going, you know, from product market fit slash starting growth to really being able to accelerate that growth rate. So trying to parse out some of the things that you were saying, like the pieces where we're running, you know, where we where people have run into these issues in in our systems, which we found out from having the intimate relationship with the customer, really comes around implementation of ideas and getting buy-in for implementation of ideas. So 
we have to focus a lot on customer success. And there's a lot of support that goes into that process. And what we found once again was we never touched on the secondary piece of the product offering that we actually have. It's essentially, if you think about a startup accelerator, right? Imagine that startup accelerator program inside of your organization. So what we do is actually we run these campaigns. And then once the ideas are selected, we actually co-developed a product with Aurora Healthcare that enables a frontline employee to take that idea, validate it, prototype it, and then actually pitch it to somebody in the organization that owns the budget for implementing it. So it's an end-to-end system for corporate innovation. It can be applied externally once again as well. But Going off the point of, right, it's really hard to sell and then you have to focus on customer success. Really, like what we're doing with this rewrite is is trying to take a lot of that support out. And with the assumption, it's going to really enable growth. Kind of one more thing on that too. Talking about the sales cycle in general, like we're looking at for, you know, smaller deals. You're looking at a, you know, 45 to 60 day sales cycle uh, and series of three meetings from a sales process standpoint. Uh, varies, right? But looking at averages, that's that's about what we're looking at. You have a lifetime value of a customer over fifty thousand bucks for us, so we're not looking at you know, um, you know, fifty dollar a month deals. Minimum deal size is is normally about nine to twelve, nine to ten thousand a year. With that, one of the things that we've really been thinking about and is enabled by the rewrite is how do you create a self service version of IdeaWake? That's something else that will be enabled by this new infrastructure. Is right, you come in just like you would Slack. And you can actually sign up for an account, enter in your credit card information, and just off to the races with the strategic support and automation built into the system. I think we might have different definitions of product market fit to a point. I think that we are where the previous organization that you mentioned was at the you know inflection point of going from product market fit, quote unquote, to like actual true growth and scale. Got it. Talk a little bit more about that transition to scale and and what that's been like. So when you think about, you know, what needs to change in the coming 6-12 months from a from an operations perspective, paint that picture for me. Fleshing out the rest of the the rewrite. So like I said, it's it's live, it's in production. We have customers on it, but really that you know, we have 6 more months of development that we want to do in order to get it where it needs to be. So that's going to be a piece of it. But then also, right, just being able to continue to fuel growth on that new platform and, and the growing pains that are going to be associated with it. Anytime you're you know, porting your customers over to a new system, there is going to be a learning curve associated with it. The new system and old are very similar, but just, you know, we have to transition all the data. We have to make sure that everything, all the data transition happens smoothly, do a couple onboarding meetings with folks. So that's going to be the biggest challenge over the next, I'd say, six months. That's, you know, in tandem, obviously, with the change. It's not change in market needs, but really just the COVID environment. It's demand for the product went up significantly, but it results in a lot more noise in the sales process versus signal because everybody wants this now because they see the value in it. The value of it's gone up. Nobody has budget though, right? Budgets have gone down. Value has gone up. So it's really just part, you know, continuing to parse through that and, and tweak the business model until we can capture more of the market from, I'd say, the 100 to 250 employee range. Once again, it's, that's all in the plan. That's what the self-service is all about. We're not going to turn off our non-self-service options, though. Uh, I'd say that as you make the pivot, right, uh, like you had mentioned with the previous organization, you want to dip your toes in the water. You want to validate primary assumptions that you have around opening up a new uh, avenue for your business model 
before throwing all of your resources uh, at solely pursuing that. Got it. What's been the, I guess, for you personally, as you've been doing this for seven years now, right? Yes, seven years. Yeah. So you've been doing this for seven years. What, what's been the biggest challenge for you personally in terms of growth? Uh, it, and that could be, you know, something related to the business that could, that, that could be something personal, you know, what, whatever that is. But when you reflect back on like, oh man, how did we get here? What, what, what were some of the highlights there that you're like, you know, I'm really happy, impressed, whatever, that I was able to figure this piece out. What, what are those? What are some of those? Feels like just yesterday. <laughs> um, I would say like person for personal growth, right? We can go through major in, inflection points in my journey personally, but personal growth, I'm really good at sales. Uh, I love building things, uh, but I did not know nearly enough about technology in the first iteration of the product that we developed uh, and didn't have, you know, the infrastructure in terms of team or resources in terms of dollars behind me. So learned a ton early stage about building things. Uh, and then, you know, the inflection point for us really was the pivot from, you know, going from my original vision of what the product, I wanted the product to be, and what I wanted the company to be, and transitioning it from a public facing, helping entrepreneurs build new things, to an internal facing inside of large organizations, helping the organizations foster innovation internally from employees. Uh, so I would say um, it's figuring out when to be stubborn. And when to see the writing on the wall, which is is immensely more easy to say than it is to do, especially if you are a founder and you are incredibly passionate. I mean, I put in my two weeks on the first day of training at Ernst & Young, right out of college, worked five years for that job, graduated like top uh, 5% of my class at Whitewater. Dude. And so, I mean, you have to be very headstrong and like, essentially, you got to be a little crazy. But that craziness is is combined with stubbornness. And that's really where a lot of founders end up um, floundering. So we were in the abyss, right, for about two years in the original iteration of IdeaWake. And I would say the biggest thing that I could, you know, and I, I this is what I preach every time <laughs> I do one of these is is really to make sure to focus on understanding who your customer is and making sure that your customer is going to pay you for your solution, right? And if you can't prove that out within the first six-month period with a basic minimum viable product, you got to start thinking about how to pivot the product in order to make money off of it. Easiest way to do that, in my opinion, is go B2B versus B2C. Even if your vision is to go B2C longer term, there's always going to be a version of your product 95% of the time that you can sell to businesses, which enables you to either right raise money if you want to go that route, or it provides the ability for you to feed yourself and, and your family if you have it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Uh, that's awesome. All right. I know that we're just about out of time. If folks would like to learn more about IdeaWake or if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can either uh, go to our website if you want to learn more about the company in general. It's uh, IdeaWake, I-D-E-A-W-A-K-E.com. Or, you know, if you you have questions on whether it's, you know, something about entrepreneurship or running corporate innovation programs inside of your company, you can actually just reach out to me on my email, uh, which is Kobe, C-O-B-Y, at IdeaWake.com. Awesome. Kobe, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. And Mike, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the time, too. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. 
If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.